This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone, it is a guitarist, Al DiMiola. A couple of years back, he put out a uh, The Beatles tribute uh, album, for the lack of a better word, and he's got a second one coming up, a, another tribute to The Beatles coming up in uh, January or February of 2020. We talk about that and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, on the other side of that, we have drummer Chuck Berge. He, of course, is Billy Joel's drummer, has been there for 14, 15 years, and I just saw them November 15th, 2019, in New York at Madison Square Garden. And let me tell you, what an incredible, incredible show, incredible performance. It really, you know, Billy Joel, love him or lump him, and I love him. He he just has hit after hit after hit. I mean, uh, the set list, I think it was 25 or 26 or whatever songs. And, you know, I'm not familiar with every single Billy Joel song ever written. And you get there and he starts playing them and you go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, and it's just it's 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 wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally speechless. It's wow. And uh, anyway, uh, the show was great, and, and the great part about it is that he makes it sound like a bar show. The way he interacts, it's so casual. It's so just, hey, everybody, I'm going to play some songs for you, and he tells some stories, and and the crowd responds, and, and it really is like a piano man in a dirty bar, you know, everybody having a whiskey and a smoke kind of thing, and it, it it's it's phenomenal. Anyway, I, we we caught up, or I caught up with a Chuck before the show, which in itself was a moment because here I am at the premier venue for live music, backstage doing an interview. I, I mean, you know, uh, for for musicians, I guess it's to stand on the stage and play Madison Square Garden, which is a big dream. But for a or you know rock reporter to do an interview backstage at Madison Square Garden. It's like, oh, well, check that off the, the list, you know. Uh, during the day or before the show, I had a chance to uh, to speak with Obie O'Brien, who has uh, worked with Bon Jovi for many, many years. They were in town to listen to mixes of the new Bon Jovi album. So hopefully they were final mixes and the album will be forthcoming, but they were there. And they were listening to what are being submitted, I guess, as final mixes. And so if the uh, whoever, I guess, is the record company or the management or whoever, gives it the green light, uh, then the uh, the machine gets into work, means the band doesn't have to go back into the studio, and it means that we start coming up with a plan of, okay, we need to roll it out this way, we need to get this single put out on this day, we need to get an album cover done for this, and... So, you know, we're November 2019, they're in New York listening to final mixes. Assuming that everything was approved and it's good to go, you're probably looking at a March 2020, April 2020 release. Worse comes to worse, maybe because they want to maybe capitalize on sort of summertime sales and pre- uh, you know, festival sales in Europe and what, maybe May 2020, but, uh, you know... Listen, unless something implodes, um, you should be getting a new Bon Jovi album in the first quarter of uh, 2020. Anyway, uh, show is long enough without me uh, going on and on and on. So let us get over to... Uh, oh, first, and I will say this. Um, Chuck Berge, during our interview, 
because Chuck worked with Al. This is why I'm putting them on the same episode. Chuck worked with Al. So you're going to have Al DiMiola first, and then you're going to have Chuck speaking about Al DiMiola. Of course, Chuck does more than speak about Al DiMiola. He talks about uh, Billy Joel and a whole bunch of other uh, Tokyo Motor Fist, the new album uh, that he has coming out with uh, Trickster's Steve Brown. And you just cannot get enough Steve Brown in your life. That guy, he's the real deal. Real deal. You know, and that's why when, you know, Dennis D. Young needs a guy, they call Steve. When Def Leppard needs a guy, they call Steve. When Eric Martin needs a guy, they call Steve. Real deal. So, and, and by the way, uh, the hookup for all of this was uh, Steve to Chuck. So a uh, big, big shout out. Big thank you. Big thank you to Chuck. Big thank you to Steve. And a big thank you to Al DiMiola for the interview. And let's get right over to it. Here is, without further ado, le seul et unique, the one, the only, Al DiMiola. We are speaking with a guitarist, Al DiMiola. Uh, of course, back in 2013, he put out a Beatles tribute album called All Your Life. And uh, coming up in January or February of 2020, there's going to be a new one. Uh, as we say in Montreal, bonjour, Al. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm at the record company here in Hamburg, Germany, and just had a very full six days of uh, video shoots and camera and uh, photo sessions and interviews. And, and uh, yeah, we're going to give it, you know, hopefully a lot of attention. Uh, we're very happy with the, the end result of, of this uh, big project. Much bigger than the first one. Much bigger, yeah. And, I, and I've been seeing on your Facebook that you've been uh, filming out by the water and having these great landscapes. Uh, it, it looks it looks fantastic. <laughs> and, of course, nothing's been released yet. But, okay, so talk to me about this, the second Beatles album. Was it just, you know, you did the first one and it was received so well and you said, I'm going to do this one. Was the first one like, oh, I've got some unfinished business. I didn't do this song. And the Talk to me about the second one and, you know, how you decide which songs are going to go on this. And is this sort of two out of three, two out of four, two out of five? Or, okay, we've done two. It's a, sit that say, it's enough. I don't know. You know, uh, now that I've done the second one, you know, <laughs> of course, I tried to squeeze another two or three on that I really wanted to do. So there's always that, that feeling that if, if, if I did another one, it would have to, I'd have to wait kind of a long time or else people think I'm like beetle crazy, which I am beetle crazy, but, uh, I have to space them out if I, if I ever, ever did that. And, but you know, part of the reason was the first one did do very well. It was very well received, very well liked and sold well. And, and the other reason was, yeah, there was, there was pieces that I wanted to do, you know, and, and, and if I did it this time, I didn't want to do it like the first time. First time I wanted to make it, uh, you know, pretty, pretty slim down in terms of instrumentation. I just wanted to be pretty much solo acoustic guitar uh, with maybe an acoustic overdub. And that's it. I didn't want to get, although I was tempted, but I didn't want to get seduced into uh, uh, adding other instruments, keyboards, drums, and all that kind of stuff, uh, orchestral instruments and whatnot. Uh, I wanted to go to Abbey Road and and really not belabor the project. And but and in essence, uh, you know, it was it was a cooler idea to to do it in in that kind of fashion because it sets it apart from a lot of other thousand other uh, you know Beatle attempts by other 
by other people who basically wanted to, you know, pretty much copy what, what the Beatles did. I wanted to do something far different. So I think I achieved a lot of that in that first record. This time I wanted to do a bigger production, but I wanted to combine my style with with the Beatles, uh, you know, and stick a little bit closer to the melody as as we know it. Um, and talk to me a, bit, a little bit about your style and and how you compose and how you come up with with songs. Just because you know, when you think of, for example, a pop song, you know, you've got a singable guitar riff, you've got a, a big hook, you've got a chorus. You know, A goes to B, B goes to C, and everybody's happy. How do you sort of come together and put your songs together and decide, okay, these parts go here? How, what's your process for, for songwriting? It was, it's just, you know, there's, it's a longer conversation, longer story, more, more chapters. Um, you know, I don't want to use the word more depth because, because really, you know, if you take a song like Norwegian Wood, you know, the melody is just absolutely stunning. All you need to do is hear the melody and the bridge, and, and you're done. It's a two-minute song, and everybody is happy, and everyone loves it universally. And then, you know, I could write something that's that's got, you know, 10 times the content, maybe 50 times the content, and you don't have that immediate uh, kind of recognition uh, that, you know, the Beatles will get from something that was just short, concise, and, and absolutely beautiful. So my idea was was realizing there really is nothing more powerful than you know melodies that go straight to the heart that also have some kind of history to it and 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 all I wanted to do was expand on it and and play a lot of the way that I play, which is, involves a lot of syncopation or whatever. But I also wanted to write some parts to it and elongate the composition and. Even though I start with it the way we know it, I, I might finish it with the way we know it too. But what's where where I take it to two or three or four different chapters in the middle um, makes it more more of an owl record because then then you know you're you know my job is to replace the 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 fact that we have no vocals no words so. Is more of an obligation to 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 make it more interesting than uh, had I done an instrumental version of the two minute piece, the original. Right, of course. Um, talk to me then about uh, about the Beatles, since we're since, since that's the conversation. You know, you you listen to Paul Stanley or Gene Simmons' A Kiss, or you listen to these guys, and they say, "I saw them on Ed Sullivan, and that was the end of it. I had to be a rock star." What was your sort of memory of the Beatles? Was it something that you discovered quietly on the record player in your bedroom, or was it also the Ed Sullivan thing? And what was it about them that just sort of said, "Yeah, that's that's for me. I, I like this." I was. I think it was first the the uh, my sister coming home. She's seven years older than I am. With the Meet the Beatles uh, first record in America, that was the first one that that I knew about. And that's the one with I Want to Hold Your Hand and Sora standing there and that kind of stuff. And those were big hits on the radio. There was a rage about them. The buzz was not to be believed. And then Ed Sullivan, probably within weeks of me discovering that record that my sister brought home, uh, I think 75% of the population of the whole country tuned in to Ed Sullivan. And that was it. it changed my life. Totally, it really did, and not just me, but 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 a whole generation of primarily guitar players and some singers 
uh, bass players. It, it changed our lives. It, 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 and what can I say? You know, the world wouldn't be the same without them. But it would, they were they were at a great place at a great time in history. You know, there could not be a similar thing like that today ever. Because we have too many channels, we have too many choices, we have too many diversions with cell phones and computers, and people are all over the place. Where back then we had far less choices, so we, you know, we traditionally sat in front of the TV and watched Ed Sullivan show on Sunday. <laughs> there was only four or five channels, you know. So uh, this one was a big one because we all knew the Beatles were coming on. And, and then, you know, when the Stones did their thing, we all watched the Stones, too. But the Beatles was, was we had never heard anything so great because it truly was great. It was. And, and I, I do agree with you that we've we've lost our focus. You know, I, I grew up uh, right. watching the 80s and watching MTV and much music in Canada. And you just you didn't have a remote. You had to actually stand up and change. So you just left it on. And I got an appreciation for all those heavy metal bands and the Duran Durans and the Madonnas. And you go, well, why do you like all these different styles of music? Because I was too lazy to change the channel. But now we don't have that focus. It's You just go everywhere. Um, I want to ask you about this real quick. Uh, you worked with Pledge Music, and I'm not going to get into that debacle. I mean, horrible, horrible thing happened. But you had um, the, the Pledge set up to, to donate to the American Tinnitus Association Talk to me about why you chose that charity to donate to, and is is it something that is uh, affecting you? Oh yeah, I have severe what they categorize as catastrophic tinnitus. Catastro- catastrophic means it's it, the level is so loud that uh, it, it it's off the ch- it's off the charts, you know. Uh, and I have to sleep with a white noise and take medication and all kinds of stuff. And it's 24-7. It doesn't fluctuate ever whatsoever. It's just a super loud screaming in my head that I can't shut off. How does that affect your 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 playing, but also how does it affect your concentration and your health? I mean, at some point, does it just become, and, you know, I don't mean to be, you know, intruding, but, I mean, does it become psychological where it just drives you nuts to the point of, like, Argh. Oh, yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there's been, you know, points where you you think you're gonna go crazy and stuff like that um but you do i tend to talk i talk to people like uh pete townsend about it a lot because he, he has it too he thinks pete, pete's pete's funny guy he's actually a great guy but he <laughs> he thinks he got it from motorboat from the wind hitting him when he's in the motorboat he said pete yeah, you had 50 high-watt amplifiers behind you, and you had Keith Moon, like, exploding his drums. No, 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 I, I'm sure I got it from the boat and the wind. <laughs> no, I look, you get it from your instruments, for sure. Drums are really bad. Headphones, um, click tracks, all those records I made with the click track, going tick, 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 against the eardrums. Um, when I was a kid holding the wood for my father, he was a carpenter. And the power saws, and they had no ear protection. And I used to cringe. Hold a piece of wood! Okay, Dad. You know. Or the hammering. Just hammering. It's super loud. And eventually, you know, 
either you will lose your hearing slowly as a result, or there are some people who are susceptible through genetics to also get tinnitus or tinnitus. Both are, by the way, a correct uh, the way correct way to say it. And um, yeah, you might have you know twenty musicians, and you might have three that three or four that have tinnitus, and the rest are just have some loss. So the ones that have tinnitus are genetically predisposed uh, to get this, and it's a brain thing; it's not an ear thing at all. So, and, and I'll, I'll move on from this. But does it sort of? Do you think to yourself, okay, well, I'm going to have to retire, or do you say, well, this is it? Is, no. I'm just gonna, okay. Okay. No, you, you, you just, you just got to, I hate to say it, not think about it. Like, if you focus on it, it could make you crazy. But, and it's there no matter what you do, but you just get tired of hearing it, so you try not to think about it too much. Right. Well, uh, and, and hopefully I haven't forced you to focus on it today. But so let me, let me get off of this topic. Let me go to Return for, okay. uh, Return to Forever with Chick Corea. Uh, great band. Yeah, great band. deaf. Yeah, he's apparently deaf now. He can't hear, you know. And these these are guys that have probably lost eighty percent of their hearing. I thought I think I've lost maybe thirty percent of my hearing, and I've got a lot of ringing, which doesn't help. But here's a guy that that has no ringing and has probably an eighty percent loss. You know, and musicians will just you know as as you go on, you uh, that that happens. So yeah, that was, Return to Forever was a great experience. It was a launching pad for me, of course. Yeah. Well, and that's what I want to ask uh, ask about because uh, you eventually go on and do Land of the Midnight Sun. Where in there did you, did you always know when you were in Return to Forever that I am going to be a solo artist and this is sort of a stepping stone, or did you get some point in there you just went, man, this is not for me. I I need to express myself. Talk talk to me about that time. No, no, I, I was hoping Return to Forever uh, after signing a multi-million dollar deal with CBS would just continue on and, and with the contract. But but Chick was a very erratic, um, not very bright thinking businessman who let the, the laws and religion of Scientology cloud his perspective and his judgment. And as a result, after signing a multi-million dollar long-term contract that the group signed, we all signed, he handed the contract back after Romantic Warrior because he wanted to break up the band. So he handed this contract back, which was the dumbest thing on the planet Earth. And, and yeah, I was, I was frightened because I was still, you know, I was 20 or 21. And I said, oh, my God, <laughs> it's all over. You know, but I did have my own solo contract and I didn't know if I could write. I didn't know if what I could do on my own. I had to do just do it and see what comes out. And when I landed and my son was kind of like uh, a testing ground. And then I really knew on the second record, Elegant Gypsy, that I had something, you, you know, that I can call my own, that I, I, I can actually write music and and then it just i think of you know we're talking about 30 records so uh it definitely has evolved the writing and that's you know more of what i like to do 
you know, and every now and then like to do something like this with the Beatles because it's uh, close to my heart. Yeah, and it sort of steps outside of what you. Well, in fact, talk to me about the the album making process at this point because you have this long, large catalog. Are, are you still motivated to come up with new music, or do you sort of see yourself going, "Hey, you know what? I can go play the Montreal Jazz Fest and just give them my best." 10 pieces and move along what what sort of keeps you creative is it important to stay creative well you can stay creative just not making a record just by going out and 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 improving on the ones that you do live or you can pick a project like the beatles or like i I, i'd like to sometime do a second piazzola follow-up to diabolic inventions because that was that was really a great project too um to do original material that that's and do all of it all of the writing uh that takes a lot of time it's a lot of struggle harder to do these days because there's more and more gigs than ever before more and more possibilities in 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 that there's more family things going on there's more diversions with the cell phone so it's it's a long process and not a lot of um motivation because because you know we don't see record stores anymore they're gone and streaming is just a, a form of stealing from musicians it's a, it's a you know in my opinion i mean you you there are a lot of people who like the streaming system but it, to me it's god awful compared to the days of going to a store and picking up a record looking at those records and buying them. The whole experience was beautiful. Uh, listen, I, I cannot I, stand I, the way it's going now. I, I agree with you. The, the, there was a whole ritual of getting out of bed and going down to the store and then searching through uh, the bins, and, and we missed that. But what we also miss uh, is that when you brought it home, whether it was a vinyl or a CD, there was a full spectrum of sound. Now you've got everything compressed. And when you're listening to an Al Miola record, and the stuff's compressed, you're like, really, Alan, MP3? No, no, it does you, yeah, you know, yeah. you need, you need and, to. Hold- and by the way, I've gotten used to the MP3s. I've, you know, because I got everything on my phone and I'm traveling all the time. So, so the convenience factor may be there, but I'm, I'm totally used to the sound on a phone. I forgot what a record sounds like. I totally forgot. Now you see, Although I got to tell you, the, the vinyls are selling very well at our shows. <laughs> I bet. People buying vinyls more now than than ever before, uh, not ever before, but I mean in the last few years. You know. Now I, I know but we've. I, all... I, I much prefer the, the years ago. You know the way it was. I don't like this new this new system. It's terrible. Yeah, you're you're, you're speaking my language now. I know we only we've only got twenty minutes, so, I just, so I'm just going to rush along to these last two questions. Uh, in two thousand, I got to run to the airport. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. So let me just finish this. Uh, in two thousand fifteen, you were honored at the uh, Montreal Jazz Festival with the Miles Davis Award. That is uh, to honor the international jazz musicians for their entire body of work. Um, talk to me about that, because you know there's a few jazz festivals in the world, but Mo- Montreal is sort of up in the top ten of the of the biggest and the best. What was that top like five. to get top five? Right, I mean, it's a great festival, and it's literally down the street from me. But what, what was that like to get that award? Because now you've got this festival and the musicians behind it, and the organ saying, "Hey, Al, you're not just some dude. You are this guy, and we just bestow this award on you." It's amazing. I mean, you know, it it 
it would have to come from a foreign country. How, how do you like that? Well, not foreign I mean, to me. <laughs> it's, no, it's not foreign. I mean, not foreign like Europe, but I mean, it's a different country. Let's say it, it would have to come from a different country, even though we're related. We're cousins. But, you know, Montreal's audience was amongst the best in the world uh, for liking and, uh, you know, appreciating what I've done. Because every time I played there, I always felt uh, an extra surge of appreciation that than even the Americans. So uh, there's something about Montreal. I just, I just uh, you know, I've experienced it over and over. And then uh, getting honored with this award was 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 really you know beautiful. It was you know well appreciated. And I, I recently got one. Uh, well, when we did the Re- Return to Forever reunion, I got a I got a BBC Lifetime Achievement Award from George Martin, and that that blew my wow. mind. Right, that's as big. Well. That's big and big. Uh... Uh, I know you got to get the airport, so I'll finish with this. Uh, back to Land of Midnight Sun, you had bass player Jacko Pistorius play on uh, <laughs> on it. Uh, just qu- a, qu- a quick story about Jacko. We know that in uh, Metallica's bass player did a whole documentary about it, and he's just one of these guys, right? Uh, what was he like to be around and to work with and, and just as a talent? Well, Jacko was, you know, he, he definitely was the most revolutionary uh, bassist uh, ever, you know, I mean, no one had heard anybody like anything like that before. Uh, it's not to slight Stanley because Stanley took the bass into another realm as well, but we had heard slapping and all that kind of stuff before which lie in the family stone, but we had never heard someone play it so beautifully, like, like, like a, an upright bass on, on, on a fretless a fender fretless. And and with all his harmonics and, and and beauty and intelligence that he played with and feel was killer. Um, so I I knew of Jocko when I was in high school. I used to go down to Florida, and people were talking about this guy Jocko and everything. So I was kind of a guy that maybe could be considered discovering him because I recommended him to Bobby Columbia and Blood, Sweat, and Tears, who was looking for a bass player. And so he wound up playing with Blood, Sweat, and Tears on my recommendation. And then Wayne, uh, not Wayne, but Joe Zawinul spotted him in Blood, Sweat, and Tears and, and hired him. But before he did any recording with anybody, his very first time in a studio was Landon Midnight Sun. That was the first time he's ever recorded in any studio. Wow, that's a great story. And I know you got to get to the airport. Uh, new album, Beatle Classics, uh, is coming out January, February of 2020. Yeah, we will have a title soon. We were working on a title. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying you to have think. Any ideas, let us know. Let me think. Uh, huh? Yesterday, today, uh, I don't know. <laughs> anyway. uh, we were thinking 60 years ago today, or yeah, some... 60 years today. Yeah, something but, like that. But I don't, I don't love it. And somebody said... Uh, you know, this music went straight to my heart. I said, well, what about straight to the heart? You know? Yeah. I don't know. That's a good so, Ryan Adams song. It's, a t- it's straight to the heart as a Brian Adams, so that's, that, that cancels that idea. See? You know what I mean? See? <laughs> but uh, absolute pleasure, and uh, boy, I could do another 45 minutes easily, but as we say in Montreal, I know. merci beaucoup. I know. Thank well, you we so can much. continue to view that. I'm going to play the festival this summer. Oh, well, then great. Let us do something in person. Okay. 
Sounds good. Yeah, get my uh, info well, from the. We're working there. on it. We, I think we, I think we have an offer, so I'll be up there. But oh. let me run now, and I'll talk to you soon. Merci. Cheers. Bye bye now. All the best. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. A very big thank you to uh, guitarist Al DiMiola. As you heard, he will be at the uh, Montreal Jazz Festival in 2020. Very much looking forward to his performance uh, in this uh, upcoming summer's festival. But uh, let us get right over to drummer Chuck Berge, recorded backstage at Madison Square Garden. God, that sounds good to say that. Here is... Chuck Berge. We are at Madison Square Garden with uh, Billy Joel drummer Chuck Berge. Uh, Chuck, first of all, thank you for having us out. Oh, my pleasure, Mitch. It's hello, everybody out there in uh, podcast land. Yeah. Now, we've done an interview before, and we've talked about all kinds of stuff, but I'm going to start off just real quick. Recently, I, I interviewed Al DiMiola, and you had a chance to work with him. Sure did. Uh, talk to me about some of the work you've done with him and just him as a player. Oh, okay, so it goes way back because I joined him for his first uh, ever solo tour. I think it was for the album Elegant Gypsy. And uh, I went, we were out for six, eight months, I forget. It was a long tour, and we had the, I had the most, most amazing time playing with him because he was one of my heroes. Uh, he was technically superior at that point. Uh, the songs that we were playing were coming from his first record. And uh, for the most part, we did opening slots for the Weather Report uh, tour. Um, so we opened up for the what I think is the classic Weather Report lineup with Jocko, and they were promoting um, heavy weather. So uh, it was uh, that is that is like several volumes to actually talk about that experience. But working with Al um, was uh, was a thrill, and that was really my first um, official tour with any artist. And uh, he was a little rough around the edges in terms of I think he was a little paranoid when I worked with him. I don't know who he is now and what he's like, but he was demanding, which was no problem. Um, he was intimidating because he had just come out of working with some of the most amazing fusion drummers. Chick Corea's Return to Forever. So uh, it was uh, a wake-up call. It was an opportunity to, to do my best. And um, uh, I loved working with him. Uh, we got along great. We, went, we would hang out a lot. Um, uh, we had a bunch of Spanish guys in the band, so neither of us spoke uh, habla espanol good uh, so we I, I, I hung out with Al a good deal and really enjoyed him as a guy and uh, as a mentor I was a little overwhelmed um, because you know I just I've never been really a trained player I studied privately for a very brief period of time but someone on his level and with the people he's worked with it was intimidating so uh, but it gave me the opportunity to uh, see a lot of the planet to meet a lot of people I I a lot of great stuff in my life has come out of that tour, and it uh, it kept me in fusion music, I guess is the best way to refer to it, for a couple more years, and prepared me for a gig which came the, the year later with a band called Brand X, and that was uh, that was taking Phil Collins' place uh, and, and doing an album and a tour with them. So that was like the tail end of fusion as I think I know it and everybody looking back would know it. So Al was... He was extraordinary and, and an amazing guy to work with and an incredible talent on guitar to try and, uh, you know, rise to the challenge to play with. So we are at Madison Square Garden for Billy Joel. 
talk to me about this experience because it's very unique. Okay. It's not just a show on a tour and we move on. It is show number, I believe, 70 tonight, right? It's uh, Billy's, it's uh, this tour, this residency's 70th, but it's my 82nd tonight. Because wow. we did 12 Gardens Live when I first joined him in 2006. And he hit his 100th lifetime last, Oct- last August. So I don't know. It's like he's into 112 now, 13, 14, something, something stupid. So this is out of control. We're the most successful MSG franchise because we, A, never lose, and every show is a sellout. But um, it's unprecedented. I, if you had told me... Ten years ago, you're going to be playing, you know, your 82nd show after six years of not only doing this residency, but going on 14 with Billy. Uh, I, it's just this whole thing has been it's really hard to talk about because it's this is beyond most people's comprehension. Most guys anywhere in the world would be happy to play the garden once. Have it be sold out, that would be an even bigger plus. But to be able to do it over and over again with the, with the guy that I think is like the king of New York. That's how I think of Billy. So uh, it's an unprecedented experience. And it's a Friday night, so tonight's going to be completely nuts. And uh, we're doing a lot of hits because that's just what Billy's thinking about doing right now. And people have been loving it. So uh, this has been beyond my comprehension. <laughs> I really, I, I'm at a loss for words. You know, you'll get a feel. You've, you've been here before. This is your first show uh, yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is the best venue in the world. It's, mm-hmm. to me, the best sounding venue. And it feels the most intense to be on stage with, uh, with this guy especially, because he is Mr. New York. So, yeah. It really, yeah, it really is a, an extravaganza. Now, have you started talking about this ending at some point or is this this no, will just keep just going started talking about next year um wow. i think we're going into uh, 2020 with guns blazing um i know that the man who books us also books metallica uh the uh incomparable dennis arfa yes, and uh he's starting to drag billy uh now that we've done baseball stadiums for the last six years uh we're going to start our first football series of stadiums huh. in april we play panthers stadium in north carolina and I think there are other stadiums, uh, football stadiums, in the future of this coming year. Now, one of the reasons we know each other is through Steve Brown, who, you of bet. course, played in Trickster. Yeah. We love our Trickster. You yeah. do Tokyo Motor Fist with him. I do. We did the first one. Yeah. Great melodic rock. Oh, my God. The new album's going to be even better. So, yeah. So, let, let's get to that. Let's, let's get to album number two. So, album number two. I think Steve outdid himself. Some of the songs on, are, on this album are my favorite rock and roll songs ever. I mean, just extraordinary. So what's changed for me is I'm actually recording my drums at home. Wow. That's been a huge learning curve. But I've been my own editor, uh, engineer, producer, and I send him the tracks once I'm done and I've done all I can. And I've been sending it to him and he calls me up and goes like, dude, they're done. I'm like, thank you, thank you. So it's, it's, it's so exciting, and I can't wait for it to come out. I think uh, Bruno Ravel from Danger Danger is going to be doing some mixing for us, if not the whole record. Uh, Ted sings on it. Ted sings on it. And, uh, you know, what's really creepy is Steve gives me the albums, and they're done, in my opinion. Right. He's programmed all the drums. A lot of what I play, I take off of what he's programmed. What time is it? I, I guess got to stay on top of that. Okay, good. So 
Um, sorry about that, folks. Uh, in any case, Steve programs these great drum parts, and this new album's got some of the slickest, coolest stuff I've ever played. Um, so I've borrowed a lot from what he wrote. Um, and then uh, I just I think some of the new stuff is the best I've ever heard from him. Certainly going to top the first Tokyo Motor Fist album and be a, uh, an awesome addition to the very hard kind of medium tempo rockers that were pretty much a staple of that first album there's a lot more funky stuff and a couple of mm, i guess more atmospheric maybe pink floyd type moments it's it's really awesome i, I can't wait and i know you do have to go so i'll ask you one more question before you run out but earlier today we were talking with obi o'brien bon jovi's oh obi o'brien they are in town currently right now listening to the new mixes or the final mixes of the new Bon Jovi album. You, of course, worked on that first Bon Jovi album. On the first album. So, so, yeah. And we're in New York, so, so give me some Bon Jovi juice. Talk to me a little bit about your experience. My experience with Bon Jovi was, well, you know, I worked in a band with Bobby Kulik uh, in a band called Balance. And so we were being produced by, I was doing their second record, and we were being produced by Tony his cousin and Tony was one of the co-owners of the power station you know the great power station which has been bought by Berkeley College of Music and is going to be reopened for uh, yeah so um, in any case uh, it was through playing at the power station and playing with balance that I met a guy, the guy who produced a lot of the first album with, for John, uh, Lance Quinn. And Lance used me on a project called Archangel. Don't know whatever happened to it. I did a couple of songs, but I got a call out of the blue from him saying, listen, I need you to come in and do some songs on this Bon Jovi record. I don't even know if the band was called that at that point, but it, it, was, it was like, so who's in it? It was like, well, you know, Johnny. I was like, the janitor? You played on Runaway, right? No, Runaway, no. Runaway was Joe... Joe LaRocca, who I think has passed on into wherever all good rockers are going to go. And I hope it's a great place where there's, like, lots of good equipment. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, and everybody. So uh, I think Joe has passed on, but he, he recorded on that. I did five songs on that record. I'd be hard-pressed to remember what the names of them are unless I sat with the CD and listened to them. And I could go, that's one of them, that's another one. But um, I think for the first 15 years I was giving credit, giving credit as being a bass player. And then, and then, uh, and, 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 and yeah, no, I know. And then I think, uh, and then I, I know me and a couple of the guys from Bounce uh, were given like additional musician credit. So that's all. Johnny was great. I knew him um, because he was the cleanup guy at the end of the night of sessions. So I'd be doing sessions up there, and we'd hang out, and I just used to marvel at his looks, um, and and just go like, dude, if if you're gonna do a band, you got to do it now. And so he would smile that pearly white, amazing hundred million dollar smiling, and man. and then eventually, yeah, and then it, he was a god. The and then, you've ever seen. oh my god, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll throw uh, uh, sexuality to the wind. I was, I, I thought he was gorgeous. You know, uh, but you know, here's a funny thing: you've played Madison Square Garden more than him. Well, I'm going to have to send him a card uh, with my deepest apologies. But uh, I didn't know that. I thought for sure they would have, you know. They have not been here 82 times. Oh, my God. Well, this has been, this is unprecedented. And, uh, you know, one thing about working with Johnny and a bunch of these other bands I've been lucky to be with, there were so many good songs in those groups that uh, it's one of the things I remembered about. I don't remember what they were, but I remember there were great songs. There were great crafted, you know, pieces of rock and roll. And so I'm here tonight with a guy who 
I think newer generations are realizing that his older stuff was crafted so beautifully and so uniquely that we're just trying to bring it to life every night. I'm, none of it was broken. I, I try and pay as big an homage to Liberty DeVito as possible because, you know, so much, so much of his uh, work is, is just it's, it's standing the test of time. And uh, I, all I'm trying to do is uh, pay homage to that and, and you know, and, and be uh, consistent for Billy. So Now, I know you got to run, so I'm going to say thank you. And uh, let's go watch this show. Thank you, buddy. All right, people out in podcast lands, great to meet you and see you again. Rock on. Thank you, Mitch. Look at that. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk.